Yesterday afternoon, I was speaking with my daughter out in the high desert of uh, southeastern Oregon, and uh, do check up on her. You know, she abandoned our, us here. Um, that uh, very wicked young man who took her away from us. You know, I still haven't forgiven, but a little bit maybe. And uh, over time, I'm working on it. But um, no, I tease. But uh, so I was talking with her, and and she was talking about uh, how dry it is out in uh, eastern Oregon right now. Uh, extremely dry, and uh, so dry, in fact, that she said they're starting to have these dust storms, and she was driving home. They live quite out uh, in, the, in a rural area, and she was driving <clears throat> back from a little town that's uh, nearby, about 20 miles nearby uh, from where they live, and as she came across the valley, the dust storm became so bad. The dust started blowing, and the storm came up, and the wind was so, so strong that it was like a blizzard. She can remember when we uh, lived in upstate New York, how sometimes you'd drive and, and you know, you'd have a blizzard where you couldn't see the road. She said, that's how the dust was. It was so, it was so thick and so strong that you couldn't even see the road. And so talking about that and reminded me of the verse with which I'll begin today. Second Corinthians chapter four. We read in verse one, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But he says, verse 3, he wrote, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So he highlighted the fact that we have the benefit of clarity, of understanding the truth. But he said to the world around us, the gospel and understanding of the things of God is, is veiled. He says, verse 4, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. It's not the time for them to understand now. But he used this term of, of being veiled, the gospel being veiled or obscured. Most of the world is walking around in, in, in a fog today, blinded to how to live in peace, blinded in how to govern or be governed, blinded in, as to how to love God and to love our fellow man. Isaiah chapter 59 in Isaiah 59, I think it lays out the scenario quite accurately in terms of what we see today. Isaiah chapter 59, this, the first part of the chapter identifies the characteristics of a society that is, is separated from God. And he says in verse 7, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. He was obviously talking about his time, but I think we can apply it to our time as we look around. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice. We read in verse in verse 8 again, they have, uh, there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And then verse 9, it says... Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. We look for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope 
as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. In other words, he's putting himself in the place of the, the people of that day, of the citizens. And he says, we, we don't know where to go. We can't see where we are supposed to go, what we're supposed to do. Like hamsters on a, a spinning wheel, like a rat in a maze. This really, this really speaks to the world around us today. Because a world races on and staggers on, not knowing where it's going or whether it's going anywhere, as we spin in this vast emptiness of space, we see ourselves, and as the closer we look from space down to our culture today and our society today, we see confusion. Before the arrival of the horse, the, the Plains Indians killed buffalo by obscuring their vision by getting them to race forward to where they could not see. Um, there's a place in, in Wyoming, it's called the, the Vor Buffalo Jump. And it's a, it's a sinkhole at the edge of the Black Hills in Wyoming. And what they would do is they would, as the herds would migrate over the plains, a certain time of year, they were able to uh, surround a, at least a portion of the herd and scare them and and, and get them to stampede toward this massive sinkhole. And this site is now called, called the Vora Buffalo Jump because what they would do is as they came over the edge of the, the cliff of this sinkhole, they would fall in. And one would push the next in, and as they were running, they couldn't see where they were going. There was dust in the air. Hundreds and hundreds of buffalo would go over the cliff and, and die, and then they would be able to go in and skin them out and dry the meat and use them for the, for the following year. Bison were not able to stop. They were trapped because they couldn't see where they were going, and they raced over the edge just like, I would say, our world is doing today, not knowing where it's going and racing in blindness, like a herd of a buffalo at Vor Buffalo Jump. Let's go back to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse... 24, read a couple of verses continuing with this theme. Verse 24, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, he says, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. And he goes on. He says, I, I'm the one who does that. I'm, I'm the one who's responsible for this creation that you see, for everything around you. I am the one. God answers the questions in his word of how we got here, how we exist, where we're going, and why. And he announces what the future holds. He opens up that veil for us. We have eyes to see. And as he calls us to, to open our minds to his understanding, he opens the veil. He removes, you might say, the dust. He clarifies where we're going. Isaiah 61. Still in Isaiah. Isaiah 61. And we read this amazing description of the future, the Spirit of God, verse 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then he relates what the future holds. He says, they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. The sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen, your vine dressers. And he says you, and he's speaking particularly to Israel as the, the, the leading light on behalf of God, as an example to the world, as a good example. You shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. So we see an example of how the veil is lifted for us, and we have a vision in this and other places of all the good news of what the future holds in all the, the bad news in which we are soaked today. With the tidal wave of distractions that has been washing over us for the past year or two, I think it's good to step back every once in a while and, and consider the importance of exercising our spiritual vision. We have the opportunity, as I've just been relating in a, in a small way, we have the opportunity to see the future. We have the opportunity to envision the future. But do we fully exercise that ability? The title of the sermon today is Exercising Our Spiritual Vision. And I would like to challenge you with the question, do we exercise vision in our lives? And, and what does it even mean to exercise vision? What am I even talking about when I say vision? When the Bible speaks of vision, what does it even mean? So first, let's, let's establish our, our physical template because we have, when we hear a word, we have something in our mind that appears. And so let's establish our physical template for this word vision. See, our eyes through which we see, through which we have our vision, our physical vision, our eyes are our muscles and they need the proper nutrients and exercise. Uh, we can damage our eyes by, by neglecting this fact. Uh, we can damage them by sitting in front of a TV or a computer screen all day um, or looking at the sun for hours at a time, I suppose. We can damage them in certain ways. And, and we, could, we can improve our eyesight uh, by our actions as well. Um, nutrients, for example, that are helpful to our eyes are nutrients like, like vitamin A, a very important for developing good eyesight. Uh, carrots have a ton of vitamin A. And uh, as a, a good side benefit, you have nice orange cheeks if you eat lots of carrots. At least that's what my mother always told me. So um, carrots are, are great for vitamin A, and it helps your eyes. But with that thought in mind that we... We understand we're talking about our eyesight and vision and how we can even impact our vision by things that we do. Let's then switch gears and talk about the spiritual application. And again, spiritually speaking now, okay, with that in mind, are we exercising our spiritual vision? Because if we can nourish our eyesight, our vision physically, it stands to reason that we can also, we can also nourish our spiritual vision, right? 
And are we enhancing then our vision through the exercise that we do spiritually? We want to apply the lesson. Or is our spiritual vision getting cataracts? Is it becoming cloudy? Is it, is it deteriorating? Because it can. Our spiritual vision can deteriorate just like our, our physical vision. So what we're going to do next then with that basic backdrop is look at three different areas I'd like to focus upon and, and focus on this, this theme or the, uh, the challenge of exercising our spiritual vision. And we'll begin with number one. We exercise or develop a godly sense of vision by number one, training our spiritual eyes. Let's just establish, let's just say, let's go to the absolute most basic point, and that is that we do develop a godly sense of vision by, number one, training our spiritual eyes. When I say that, I, what I mean is, is to recognize what we're seeing. So, for example, uh, babies, um, as they're just born and they're, they're lying there in the crib, they, they reach their hands out and they want to, they want to touch everything, right? That's how they learn about things. But it's, they're not just, they're not just touching for the, the benefit of their, of their fingertips. They're touching for the benefit of recognizing what that is that, so when they see that with their eyes, they can begin to associate this with this with this. But they're using their eyes as well as their fingers, aren't they? So, so they're, they're reaching out to touch everything around them to understand what they are seeing. When you flash a little, some little rattle in front of them or something, what do they do? They, they reach out because they want to, they want to see, or they want to recognize and, and sense what they are seeing with their eyes. Just seeing alone is not enough to understand. They have to reach out and, and touch it. I saw a, a, a movie one time about a blind man recovering some of his sense of sight. It was a Val Kilmer movie, and uh, he he actually, for, from some type of medication or something, he was able to regain his sight. That was the drama of the movie. But what happened was it was only temporary, and then he lost it again. So it was a very sad thing. But but what was interesting is the frustration that this actor, this 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 uh, uh, particular character in the in the movie felt. As he couldn't, he couldn't tell the difference between a picture of an apple and an apple. Now again, he was an adult at this at this time, seeing everything for the first time, and so he he couldn't tell the difference between, let's say, two dimensions and three dimensions, and so he had to touch it, and it led to a lot of a lot of frustration because he, he wasn't always right. He ended up injuring himself. That was a it was a fascinating glimpse into sight and vision and how it works from our perspective most of us have never had to do that we've experienced vision from the the time we were born and so it's it reminded me of that of that baby when a baby looks at a mirror you can tell it's hard for it to understand what am i seeing and and they and it's a lot of fun to put a mirror in front of a baby because of that Sorry, that's that's not really good fathering, I suppose. But anyway, there are all, lots of ways you can have fun with your kids, and and that was one of them. But um, but but it's it's because of its its eyesight is trying to recognize what it sees. Okay, so how does this apply to us spiritually? How does this how does this apply? Well, we form opinions as we mature, don't we? Spiritually speaking, 
As time goes by, everything that we see is measured or, or compared to what we have seen to be accurate. So eventually, we fit what we see, or we shoehorn what we see sometimes, into to what we already believe. We make it fit what we already believe many times without even recognizing it. And But the reality is there's no human who truly has the right template and understanding to properly, completely, absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, accurately understand everything that's going on around them. Because we have a limited experience, right? That's the whole problem with Adam and Eve taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's their experience is what guides them into what they believe is, is right. So you understand the point. For us, as we go through life, we only have the benefit in terms of experience of our life, of our moments, of our days, not of the thousands of hours and days of all humanity and certainly not of God. So we, we begin to categorize what we see based upon what we've seen before. And we begin to make assumptions as, as a result. Have you ever seen that paragraph that's written out with missing letters in it? And you, and you, and you, it's put in front of you and you're supposed to read it. And you read through the whole paragraph and it's only when you look more carefully, you realize there are missing letters everywhere. But our brain fills in because, that's, that's fine. Thank you, Mr. Wakefield. You can turn it off. So our, our brain fills in the missing words. And in our actions, what we see, what we perceive around us, our, our, vir, our vision, spiritually speaking, and how we judge things around us, to some degree, we're filling in the blanks by our assumptions and by our experience, whether our experience is accurate or not, whether our experience is based on our physical emotions, our physical ideas, our opinions, what we've been soaked in from life, our environment, what we've been pressured into by our peers around us, all these things are pressuring us into making assumptions to fill in the blanks. Now, our challenge is that we are supposed to judge by the mind of God, not by all those other things, right? So when our daily life confronts us, how do we, how do we make spiritual judgments? How do we see things around us spiritually, through the mind of God, the eyes of God, and not simply just our own our own ideas. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16. And let's categorize this into a couple areas so perhaps the point will be made clearer. Again, I'm still talking about the topic of of, of, tra- of the importance of training our spiritual eyes. So you can you can tell obviously what I'm saying is we need to we need to exercise it. We need to do more. There is more ground to cover. We need to train our eyes. Not We're not all just okay as we are. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples here of, of categories in which we, we need to train our eyes. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, we're going to put ourselves in the place of the, the audience right here. Matthew chapter 16. And verse 1, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. 
And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. In other words, prophetically, there's one category that we'll talk about for a moment. Prophetically, we need to learn to discern, to see, to to recognize what's happening around us and what's going to happen in the future, and even the past, how the past has been laid out according to a plan of God. So prophetically speaking, we need to develop vision, right? We need to see clearly. And the comment that he made to the Pharisees and Sadducees is that they don't. They could not see. They could not discern the signs of the times, what was happening around them. I read Isaiah 61 purposely because... Back in Isaiah 61, we, we of course, in, in Luke is where we see Christ referring to this and, and actually taking the scroll and speaking. And we know that he stops short of that final part where he talks about vengeance. So he was giving, you might say, certain clues as he was talking, but they were oblivious because they expected a Messiah, but he didn't fit what they expected. So therefore, even though he was there as the Messiah, fulfilling a purpose... They, they didn't understand it. They didn't see it. What's happening around us prophetically if we are not training ourselves and learning? If we don't read, if we don't study, that's the whole purpose for so many booklets and magazine articles and, and telecasts and programs that we do where we highlight and we review and we, we, we walk through different prophecies in the Bible. What's the purpose of all of that? It's so that we can see clearly, that we can discern what's happening around us, and what will happen as it happens, and what has happened. If we ignore that knowledge and that learning, then what's happening? What what are we doing? We are not training ourselves to see clearly in this category, let's say in terms of prophecy, prophetically speaking. You know, the, the, the people of this time had all the prophetic books of the Bible, didn't they? I mean, they had the 12 minor prophets that by this time it was in a, a scroll that was uh, all, all together on one scroll. Already, what, I um, was just reading the other day as we were working on the, the minor prophets uh, course with Dr. Winnale is, is, is uh, doing, taking the Bible studies that he did here. And we're putting them into a, a course on the book of Hosea. And if you read uh, the writings of, there's a man called Jesus ben Sirach, um, he, he wrote about 190 B.C., and he refers to, this is a secular document, he refers to the, the 12, the scrolls, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were, that were, that date from around 150 B.C. They mention the 12, uh, the, the minor prophets. So that's 150 years before Christ, well before he walked the earth. So, uh, they had the necessary materials, but they, they didn't listen and they didn't learn. We understand they were not inspired by God to understand. But the point is for us, we, we should draw a lesson from that and recognize that our spiritual vision needs to be sharpened prophetically so we're able to discern as we should. Another way our spiritual eyes need training to have clear spiritual vision is in our moral clarity. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, so Christ, verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, 
But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So we read how... Verse 9, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So begins to he, he, he summarizes the experience of Christ on the earth, the role he played, and how he learned by functioning within that role. And then he comes to this. He says, verse or writes, verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have been dull, become dull of hearing. So this is this should wake us up a little bit. The, the, the fact that we can get tired of hearing the same thing or reading the same thing again and again. So our little our antennas go off. Oh, 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 could that be me? And then he goes on. He says, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, unskilled in terms of being able to what? Well, let's just keep reading. He says, verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use or reason of habit, as it can be translated, have their senses discerned, their organ of perception. If you look at the actual, what is the, the, the meaning of that word? It's their or, the organ of perception. Their senses exercised, practiced, trained to what? Discern both good and evil. To discern how to approach the moral dilemmas that face us every day in terms of what we, what we, what we should do and what we should not do. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 mentions something along the same lines. 1 Corinthians 2. And he says, verse, verse 12, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Again, I hope you'll, you'll think again about how we fill in the blanks, how we make assumptions about what we see, how in other people's, well, we'll talk about some specific instances, but what we see from other people, what we hear, how often we fill in the blanks, in terms of our discernment, our vision, what we see around us, keep that in mind. He says, verse, uh, again, verse, uh, verse 11, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish, foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, perceived, understood. 
He says, verse 15, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. In contrast to the mind of the world. So I thought about what example to use in terms of trying to, to draw this, this out. I kept coming back to one, and that is this, the video games. Now, you might say, oh, no, not video games again. But let me ask the question. Let me ask the question. Is it okay to play, for example, is it okay to play active shooter video games? Okay? Now, the reason I kept coming back to this as I was thinking about this is because this is a very real part of the lives of many young men, some women, but mostly young men in the church today. And many of you are oblivious to it, though it's a part of life, perhaps even an addiction, for many of the young men who are we are trusting to be leaders of the next generation of the church. By the way, the largest segment of young men playing these games today is, or of, of people playing these games today is the age between 18 and 34. That's right, I said 34. 34 year olds are a big chunk of this as well. So it's a very real issue because it speaks to the question of the young men who are, for example, coming into our living education program speaks to the question of who is on staff at our living educate or living youth camp that we have in the summer camps. Who is going to be influencing our kids, your kids, and my grandkids? Who is going to be telling them what's okay and what's not okay? If you have no idea of what I'm talking about, these active shooter or first-person shooter games are video games in which the participant is involved in virtually shooting another person. The situations are realistic. The adrenaline is real. The dopamine in the brain is real. That addicting element that is part of us. And I really, really wanted to play you today a trailer from a few of these games that are most familiar. Uh, to many young men in the church, maybe a young man sitting next to you today, or perhaps one that you converse with on a regular basis. But if I, I was afraid that if I played one of those, that you would be shocked and appalled. And anyone who is involved in it would be concerned because they would recognize what they see on the screen. And now I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the actual game itself. I'm talking about cleaned up video clips that you can get on YouTube right now that, that are posted as trailers. But if I show them to you, I know that some of you would say, how can you possibly show that with my children sitting here? But yet, that's, those are very popular with young men of the world and with many young men in the church today. So instead, I'll read you a list of the top 12 by current popularity so that you can ask all the young men that you know if they're playing these games. Best game, 2021. The most essential first-person shooters for console and PC. Not including handheld. 
By the way, understand something. If you are not aware of this, these games are often played by teams where individuals will team up with people across the country. Young men might be in California or in Michigan and form squads to, to, to engage in this. Well, then they will go and shoot people, shoot monsters, shoot aliens, shoot whatever it is, and blood will spatter everywhere and, and body parts will come off and all that type of thing. But they'll do it as groups online. That's a big part of it, the way it's, the way it's done today. So here's a list of a dozen, the top dozen, as of, as of this year. Uh, first one's called Doom Eternal. Second one's called Far Cry 5, next most popular. Here's the next one, Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Next one, Halo, the Master Chief Collection. Halo, a whole bunch of, a whole series on Halo, and, um, and so that's a, a popular one. Half-Life 2, Super Hot. Call of Duty Modern Warfare or Call of Duty Warzone. Call of Duty is a big one. I know uh, young men in the church who, who are uh, addicted to that, and uh, so it's not uncommon. Um, Bioshock Remastered, Left 4 Dead 2, Overwatch, Rainbow Six Siege, and Destiny 2. So here's the thing. If you're a gamer or in a group of gamers that links up via the Internet to create teams or, or platoons, uh, to virtually kill other human beings or zombies or criminals or aliens. The question is not, is it okay? The question is, do you think Jesus Christ would play alongside of you if you ask, if you ask you, if you ask him to? Or do you think that Jesus Christ would spend Two, three, four hours every night living in that virtual world. See, and if not, then why are you? Just because it's what everyone else is doing, does that make it okay? You know, vision includes the ability to look closely at ourselves and to discern clearly who we are and where we play the hypocrite, where we play the fool. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We read 1 Timothy 4 verse 7. Reject profane and old wives, wives' fables and exercise yourselves towards godliness. Exercise yourselves toward godliness. Not the ability to somehow play a virtual game well, and be a champion at Halo or whatever else it might be. You know, he says, verse 7, verse 8, for example, this, this, this actually, the verse 7 leads to this. He says then, but bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. So now we're getting into what the, what the deal is with vision. It's that when we exercise good vision today, it actually, it actually foresees and foretells and, and, and projects us into the future because it, it anticipates and it lays groundwork for what we will be in the future. So he says, godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. So this is how we want to train our eyes, our our vision in godliness, not video game active shooter excellence. 
And it doesn't happen by going along with the crowd. Philippians chapter 4, whenever we, we have to become grounded in what we're supposed to be having our thoughts on, Philippians 4, you can't go wrong. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praise, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's what our mind's supposed to be on. And, and so I challenge you, cry out to God and ask for His strength to rewire your mind if you have fallen prey to this addiction. Now, understand something. The... I don't play those games. It's not because because I would be able to resist them. It's because I know I wouldn't. Once I, I mean, look, I couldn't resist Pong. You know, Any, anybody know? You know, Pong. The only reason that I, I could pull myself away from a Pong table is because you took quarters, and I only had a dollar when I went to the you know pizza place. And and so uh, Pac-Man, Pong. If you know what if you don't know what pong is, okay, you sit across a little console. I, I, I have to explain it to everybody that's under, you know, under 25 like me. And so pong is a you sit across at a console and you have a little a little uh, roller knob and each person does and there's a little blip that goes across the screen and it's like playing tennis. You turn it and you slide your you know your little whatever your 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 cursor along, so the, the ball bounces off it and goes back. It is great fun. It's highly addictive. And, and, and so, knowing myself, you know, I, I just couldn't go down the road of the video games because, because that's, uh, I, I knew that would be lights out for me. But, you know what? We all have different challenges, don't we? We all have different challenges. And you know, you, you know as well as I, that this is just one example of the challenges that we face in our world today. Along the same lines is, is pornography. Pornography is so rampant. It has a grip on our culture and on our men in particular. But so does gossip, right? Gossip is pretty prevalent, and gossip is really gets a pretty bad rap in the Bible, doesn't it? I mean, God comes down pretty hard on the gossip thing. So, is gossip bad? Does it tear people down? Does it work on our mind? Does it erode our, our mind? I would say so. Is it addictive? I would say it definitely is addictive. So how about, how about that? We can suffer from that. How about political debate, where we thrive on political debate? How about uh, materialism, vanity, the spirit of compromise with God's ways, ways of life. We're we're all in the crosshairs of Satan, brethren. So we need we we know that we all struggle with our own selfish, self-loving human nature. And and I've spent some time emphasizing this point number one in terms of developing a godly sense of vision by training our spiritual eyes and giving you a couple of examples, prophetically, morally. Just to be, so you understand the point very specifically and, and how it, how it really touches right to the bone. It cuts right to the bone with us if we look at ourselves in the mirror in one way or another, whether we are morally, spiritually seeing and discerning what we are to be about and what we are to excise from our lives, like a cancer that will just eat us up. 
Proverbs chapter 18, I'll give you a couple of examples, some principles. I say looking close, and then to be grammatically correct, I suppose, looking closely at ourselves. Proverbs chapter 18. Just a few examples of looking close and seeing, having accurate vision. Proverbs 18. And verse 17, simple proverb, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So here's a simple principle in terms of looking close and seeing, discerning, having good spiritual vision. First principle, take our time to draw conclusions. Take your time to draw conclusions. The one, the issue that comes up first oftentimes seems right. It may be something we read on the Internet. It may be something that may be the first impression of somebody that we meet. Um, It may be an issue that we have to settle, and the first one that comes to us, the first thing that comes to our attention, it sure sounds plausible, right, accurate, until we hear the other side of the story. Now, this is about seeing, isn't it? Because it's about discerning. Seeing spiritually, seeing clearly and accurately. If it's a puzzle or a picture, seeing the whole picture. So take our time to draw conclusions. Form opinions carefully and and with a recognition that our first impression could be wrong or, or at least could be incomplete. This is why it's wise to have a multitude of counsel. This is why... Uh, it's, it's helpful to practice, for example, like we do in, in Spokesman's Club, we practice table topics where you actually have a question posed and then different people in the club stand up and give their, their opinion, their thought, their ideas. And if we listen carefully, what happens after five or six or eight minutes, you realize, oh, I never thought about it that way, if, if we're listening to each other. And, and actually it deepens our ability to comprehend the scope of the issue, doesn't it? But it only happens if we, if we listen. If we just, if we don't listen to anybody else, but instead we, we simply hang fast to an opinion that we have, especially if it's one that we've, we've developed and we haven't really spent much time on, then we're not exercising good spiritual vision. We're not going to be able to see clearly. Here's, a, here's another one. Be willing to see the heart. Be willing to see the heart. I heard a comment the other day from someone that, that uh, sort of rang in my ears in this regard, and it was this. That we, we all have blind spots in terms of how we see other people. We, we have certain personality types that we're attracted to that resonate with us, and others that just rub us the wrong way. And so we can, we can automatically, without, without even meaning to, to we, can, we can, on the one hand, have high expectations, or we can think very highly of somebody, and somebody else not, because uh, maybe we don't click with that personality, or maybe we've had bad experiences with that personality, or maybe we have insight into that type of personality where we, where we, we can see through maybe their, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the veneer much more easily than this one. This type of personality we don't see through and recognize the, the problems, the potential. Point being, point being, be willing to take the time to actually try to learn the heart. 
and, and that takes time, but it also, it also takes uh, discernment in terms of looking to what they, the, the fruit of their actions, as opposed to simply what they say, what their words are. I think it's important that we're willing to see other people in a better light if, 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 if time proves that they are, they are more than what we first saw. Sometimes we have to, we learn to see them in a, in a worse light. We, I uh, was thinking of the, the account of Haman in the book of Esther, where at first the king thought very highly of Haman. But as the story goes on, he realized that hey, there was a dark side to Haman and ended up uh, hanging him on his, you know, his own gallows. And it's a fascinating story of learning more about what this man was really like. And, uh, and so for us, be willing to take the time to see the heart. Now, this is a this is a certainly a biblical principle because we read, for example, in First Samuel chapter six, First Samuel chapter sixteen, we read how Samuel was instructed by God to recognize that he was not going to choose by stature, by physical stature, who would be the next king, but by the heart. And that's and so we see that he commanded Samuel to anoint David as the next king. I think there's one that's a little bit more challenging for us, and that's in 2 Peter chapter 7. 2 Peter chapter 7. The one, I think the example with David, it, you know, that, that resonates pretty well. We, we can see that. This one, I struggle with. I have to tell you, I struggle with this. First Peter chapter, or rather 2 Peter chapter, chapter 2. And verse, uh, let's see here. Verse. We'll begin in verse uh, four. God did not. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell uh, or Tartarus and, and delivered them into the chains of darkness and to be reserved for judgment, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, verse six, where we're going to focus, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Wow. When you read that, if you're like me, you have a hard time swallowing that. Because Lot is called righteous. Now, I've read the story of Lot, and he doesn't look very righteous to me. How he, he offered his daughters to be abused by the men of the city. That's the slice that we get of his story, isn't it? But we don't see the years that he had been there. We don't see all that went on and how he was... If this is scripture, and we believe this, which we should... We, we see here a, a different snapshot, don't we, of the, of the challenge that he faced in the day-to-day in, in his life here in, uh, in, in Sodom. What's the point of me reading this is, well, the point is, we would probably judge Lot. Okay, I'll, I would judge Lot. Okay, I'll, I'll take that to myself. I would judge Lot pretty harshly. But apparently God sees more than, than I do. And probably more than you. Because what God inspired to be recorded here shows a different part of Lot. 
Maybe that's the same with you and me, where we can be thankful that the people around us, their snapshot of us is not our weakest moment. It's not the time that we're ashamed of. It's not when we fell down. We would love it instead to be the the time when we were really courageous and we stood up for the truth and we we were good. That's what we would prefer. But, you know, the, the beauty is that God sees it all. And he sees our heart. Now, could we, if we are not, if, if our endeavor is to take on the mind of God, brethren, could we not endeavor to do our very best to look at other people and, and try to be a little less condemnatory when we see our, the slice that we see and instead try to look at their heart? And try to see them as God sees them and recognize, of course, we're not there judging. That doesn't mean we don't, that doesn't mean we don't judge a certain action and say that's wrong. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that we have a little more patience with each other, recognizing that I think we're all, we're all trying to do the right thing and recognizing that God is working with all, with all of us and appreciating that and trying to take the mind on, mind of God on in terms of how we interact with other people. And if we do now, so that's a practical aspect of of looking closely, of seeing closely, seeing the things that are immediately around us, both with ourselves and with others. That's spiritual vision, would you not say? Now, I'm talking about this because I think normally when we when we talk about vision, we we think of way into the future. We think of of, of, of people going up to them, you know, to the, to Jerusalem to keep the feast. And we think of this vision all in the future, but that's not all vision is. Just like our vision is not only to see off in a distance, that we, our vision also helps us to see the most minute detail in front of us. Our vision allows that as well. We need to be able to see closely spiritually. I'll add, add this, a second, um, uh, or rather, a third little slice of looking closely, and that is looking closely to discern the evil also. So I'm talking about the heart, talking about the good, uh, but also be able, Matthew chapter 15 highlights this, be able to, to discern the evil. Matthew chapter 15. And by the way, through all of this, we, we shouldn't jump to conclusions. I mean, I've tried to emphasize that. I hope that becomes clear. Although jumping to conclusions, apparently it does um, it does help in terms of calories. Uh, you know, we we talk about exercise a lot these days and wanting to to burn a lot of calories and exercise. And if you're worried about uh, getting all the exercise you need because you're not jogging or you're not swimming or or playing tennis or that type of thing, look, don't you don't really need to worry about that because. Um, there was a study released recently that shows that uh, managers, particularly in companies, do burn up lots of calories uh, despite the sedentary nature of their of their jobs. So I have a chart in front of me that tells how many calories we can burn per hour if we really work at it. Beating around the bush, 75 calories. <laughs> Jumping to conclusions, 100 calories. Swallowing your pride, that's 50 calories right there. Passing a buck, that's only 25 calories. You don't burn a lot by that. Throwing your weight around, that depends on your weight. But you can, it can be up to 50 to 100 calories. Dragging your heels, what's 100 calories for that? Pushing your luck to 150 for that, that's a big one. Making mountains out of a molehill, 
500 for that. And then finally, hitting the nail on the head, that's only 50 calories. So if you work at it, you can also burn calories in other ways. I meant to actually work that into my sermon a little bit earlier, and I forgot, and so I just could not resist. So I hope you don't mind me backtracking just a little bit to, to get that in. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. So we read this small fundamental principle, but very meaningful in terms of looking closely and having that spiritual vision. Matthew chapter 15 and verse verse 8. We read this this, this uh, bringing forward of a prophecy or a, a statement that Isaiah made. Hypocrite, verse 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want to miss the point that we, we should be able to look closely to discern, discern the evil, the wrong, as well as as the good. That's important. Um, don't be misled by righteous talk or by Bible talk or full of knowledge talk. You know, there are some people that are full of knowledge, but it's the fruit that counts. And and so, by the way, this is in very important looking for a mate. We want to see, as a young person, we want to see what the person is really like, not what their talk is about, right? So this is important. Let's go to uh, let's go to Job chapter 38, and I'll just give you one more before we we look at the the far, and that uh, Job chapter 38 I think brings this one out. Job 38. So the the fourth area in which we can look closely to train our vision is in seeing God's hand, seeing God's hand. Recognizing God's hand, discerning God's hand. And I, I use this as an example because if you think of, of the book of Job, we see, we see a whole volume here about Job coming to discern the hand of God, right? And, and this is where the, the end of it is the most exciting in that regard because, because we see that, uh, that the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel with word, by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. So now he's putting the hammer down. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he goes on, one one thing after one characteristic after another, he lays it on pretty heavily on Job, saying, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And so then we see Job forty two, and this is the this is the, the conclusion here, where we find these these so these powerful words of Job that are they're so meaningful to us because because I think we've all felt them in our own minds, haven't we? When we go through something and we we recognize God's hand and we don't know maybe it's a trial, maybe it's something of, about ourselves we're struggling with and 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 we and suddenly it all becomes clear. Suddenly we recognize what God was trying to do. We through the trial it might have lasted for years. And it just dawns on us, oh, now I understand what's going on here. 
I couldn't have understood it at step one, two, three, four, five, because it was a circuitous route through all these challenges. And I find myself here, and, and I realize that I could not have planned this to be in this situation any better than how God has led me or out of this trial in a way that has, has been a blessing. So this is why I say being able to, to actually ask God to help us to discern what he's doing in our life is actually reliving the lesson of Job. So Job says here then in chapter 42, verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And here we go. These classic words. He says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. I didn't know what I was talking about. You ever been in that situation where you say, okay, I did not know what I was talking about. Oops. And we just sort of shut our mouth and we just put our head down and we go forward realizing that we didn't really get it. But now we do. This is what Job said. Things too wonderful for me to understand. Or rather, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He got it. He got it. He recognized God's hand in his life, what God was trying to accomplish, and he was able to see more clearly in a very intimate way to to see himself, to see closely, to see closely. Now, let's, let's just transition then for a few minutes and then we'll close to the other side of the coin, or the other side of the trombone, you might say, which is looking far. Looking far. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. I'll just give you a couple of examples in this regard. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. It it just paints a, a powerful picture of people who were able to act today with a mind to the future. And that's, that is so important in terms of this vision issue. To to be able to to act in such a way that they are able to to, to lay groundwork for the future. So he says, Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to go right to, uh, let's go to to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So you notice that what's brought in here is a little bit of the future, right? Because it mentions Isaac and Jacob. It says dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob because they were of him. They were of his seed. So in that sense, he was already, and when we go back to, to, uh, uh, Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 18 in particular, where God says, I've known you in order that you shall teach your children, my way, to establish a legacy of obedience to me through my laws and my ways, that harks back, that, that, this harks back to that, doesn't it? Where he says, you, you were dwelling in a sense with your descendants, 
For he waited, verse 10, for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is on the seashore. He recognized, he recognized, and he saw, he had, a, he had he envisioned the future, but he was able to, to apply his life today to that future. And that's what spiritual vision is all about. You know, we, we know that God teaches this, this concept because, for example, we read Leviticus 26. In Leviticus 26, we have a whole chapter that says, if you do such and such, I'm going to bless you. If you do such and such, I'm going to curse you. So God, and that's just one example of many, but, but I'll, I'll point it out. So we, we see God again and again actually teaching this lesson to Israel. If he taught it to them, then is it something that we should, we should recognize? Of course. Recognizing the future and how what we do today applies to that. That is spiritual vision. I was going to go to um, the example in Judges. I'll just... Maybe mention it briefly. Oh, it's such a great example that I think we need to go there, but I'll just talk really fast, okay? Judges chapter 17. Judges 17. So if you can glance at Judges 17, and I'm going to read it really fast, okay? Now, there was a man from the mountains of Israel whose name was Micah. No, I won't, I won't do that. <laughs> you, you thought I was kidding, didn't you? No, so, but if you can glance at it, and you can just look at the highlights that you have highlighted in your Bible... Um, that highlight the story, okay? Short version, thumbnail sketch. We have this priest, it says, we have this priest who was placed as a priest in this city of Dan, as we read in chapter 18. He was placed in the city of Dan, and as part of his placement and use by the Danites in this city, he placed, we see, this, this idol, this image. And it was an image that was part of the, we read in verse 5, it was part of the, of the household of Micah. Micah, verse 5, had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Ultimately, this, these idols were taken then by this Levite in verse 12. And we see this Levite then was, was, uh, you might say kidnapped by these Danites who then took him to live and the city that became known as the city of Dan. And if you look at the account here, uh, I'm going to come to the end of the story. We'll cut to the chase here, verse 29 of verse 18, of chapter 18. They called the name of this city Dan, after the name of Dan the, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, a little mystery about uh, this gentleman, but we'll leave that for another day, the son of Manasseh and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Are you kidding me? All the way until the captivity of the land? Well, that's interesting. We see that this, this carved image, which he made, stayed there at the city of Dan. And in fact, it established idolatry at the city of Dan so that it was not an accident all these years later. Let's just jump forward to 1 Kings 12. 1 Kings 12. 
When we read about Jeroboam establishing golden calves as he took Israel away from Judah, what do we read? Verse 25 of 1 Kings chapter 12. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there, and also he went out from there and built Penuel. And he said in his heart, verse 26, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam. So he asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, just not far from Jerusalem. You know where he set the other one up? He set it up in a place that was a natural place because they'd been had, actually had idol worship all the way back to the time of the judges. So it was familiar territory. He set up one in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And we read back in the book of Judges that actually that idolatry then went all the way to the time of the captivity. Right? Now why am I talking about this? Well, the point is we can look at positively at, at, at looking far and trying to act in a way where we, we actually lay ground, good groundwork for the future. But also we see examples in the Bible where actions today result in really negative consequences in the future and establish a pattern and a habit with what ultimately becomes a more than a foot of clay but actually pulls us right over the edge like those, those buffalo into the sinkhole. And we, we see it here with Israel became a snare to them that lasted throughout their whole, really their existence as a, as a people, as a nation. So we need to be careful on our part that we establish, we establish good patterns that will last to the future as opposed to negative patterns that will, will also last to the future if we can't root them out. Okay. Let's head for the finish line here. So practical application for us in terms of, of, of what we can do um, by, as, as we look to the future. I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, words. Words. Proverbs 18, verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. Our words, our, our words can create hurt that lasts on into the future. If we're thinking, if we see, have spiritual vision to, to see the future, have words that are kind. Have words that are generous. Have words that are merciful. Have words that are uplifting and positive because if we tear those around us down with our words, what are we doing? We're making it very hard to actually proceed into the future with friends, with those who are willing to want to be around us, want to be Brothers and sisters to us. So, small little practical example. Uh, James chapter 3 verse 5 talks about the tongue in the same way. And how it kindles a great fire. So, words. Uh, Titus chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 tells us to avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. This whole idea of debates. And, and this is a particularly, particularly a problem for us today because our world is so full of debates, it can be easy to fall into that. So that's one, you might say, one category of, of, uh, of having the vision that, to see into the future by what we do today. Um, seeing the potential in others. Here's another one. Seeing the potential in others. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 and 5 tell us to let nothing be done through selfish ambitions or conceit. 
but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So, by seeing the value in other people, we're actually looking to the future because we're able to encourage them. We're able to strengthen them. Have you ever been encouraged by somebody such that those words ring in your ears for years to come? I I have. I can think of words that were said to me by a a family member. It was a, it was the uncle of my wife at at a time when, uh, was, we were renovating a house and, and it was very discouraging because it was a long, hard process. And uh, he made a very encouraging remark after a particularly tough day. He had been over visiting us and helping me a little bit. And, and he said something that, um, that was very positive, and, and I'll never forget it. At his funeral, I stood up and I, I said that to his family and because it's, it, it, I appreciated it so deeply. And, and uh, you know, to this day when I think of him, I think of what he said that day. And, and so... Perhaps you have examples like that where words of encouragement, they, they, just, they just ring on and on and they echo on into your life. How about if we could do that for others where we give words of encouragement that echo down through the years in their life? Would that not be a good thing? We don't do it unless we see the potential in others. If we only think about them negatively, it doesn't mean we can't recognize when you know, mistakes are made. But if, but if we can also see the potential in them, and give words of encouragement, perhaps we, we can be actually of, of help to them as those words echo into the future. But we have to see the potential in them. See, recognize our own potential. Now, maybe this, I'm not getting into, you know, humanistic self-love type of thing. What I'm just saying is, see, actually looking to the future means that we recognize what's in store for us. Revelation, the book of Revelation is, is the end cap on the, the, our, our destination, the fact that we will be resurrected, become part of the family of God. And when we put our hope on that, when we set our mind on that, that should be giving us encouragement about our potential that God has built into us. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29, and we read verse 18. Simple statement. I've taken more than an hour to try to try to emphasize here, but it says simply, verse 18, where there is no revelation, where there's no prophetic vision, where there's no understanding. So it's the beauty of this that the the wonderful thing about this is that is that God inspired some, something that we recognize and understand physically, our vision, our eyesight. He used it in a way to inspire us to recognize that it's, it's more than just physical vision. It's, it's actually the perception. It's discernment. In this case, um, revelation. Isn't that what revelation is about? Is understanding. Wisdom. And as it can be, it can be certainly prophetic, but it's, it's at its core, it's all about understanding and, uh, and seeing. I see that. I see that. Where there is no seeing, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. One Sabbath, a few years ago, I was driving with my family on the interstate just west of Syracuse, New York. Uh, the morning service in Syracuse had gone well. We were on the way to Mount Morris. It's just south of Buffalo. 
for the afternoon service. Uh, since it was in upstate New York and it was winter, it was, of course, snowing, and uh, we approached a bridge over the freeway. And out of the corner of my eye, I, I caught a glimpse of a snowplow powering its way over the bridge um, to my left. It was coming at a pretty fast clip, but if you've ever seen upstate New York snowplows, they're about that high, the front of the, the plow. And as the plow was going over, entering the bridge, there was a tsunami of snow about eight feet tall that was just, that was flowing my way uh, in this, this massive wake over the guardrail onto the interstate below. Um, with understandable consternation, I uh, began to do a 70 mile per hour triangulation uh, calculating when I would go under the bridge and when the snowplow would pass over me, and I quickly realized that the paths would meet just about the same time. And just as I began to realize that, um, it did. And as we went just about over the underpass, there was this avalanche of snow from this giant snowplow that washed right over the windshield on, on our van. It blew off the side view mirrors, smashed into the windows in the front, the windshield right on top of us. It, it was all, it all turned out okay. But, um, I was reminded, it was fine, um, after, you don't want to hear the rest of the story, but, it, we made it to the side of the road fine, but there was an avalanche of snow on our hood of our car and our windshield. Um, but thankfully we were able to go to the side of the road, but, but I was reminded, you know, you can't, if you can't see where you're going, you're likely to end up somewhere else. And I'm just glad that we didn't plow in to the side of the bridge abutment or something because we had snow all over the front of our, of, our, of our van. All it takes is a moment. All it takes is a moment to lose our focus, to lose our vision, to forget that we need to see clearly, to have vision and understanding both of the near, the details of the day, and the far, the consequences, the ramifications of today on the future we need to envision the future to maintain the hope that lies within our hearts. But we have to be able to deal with today. So we have to be able to exercise our vision, think of it as an exercise, and as we do, think of near and also think of the far. And if we can do that, we'll be exercising, we'll be growing in spiritual vision as God has intended for us.